us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey, it's Brian. Welcome to another edition of the Lun Loop Podcast. I took a break from the podcast last week because I took my family on a mini vacation down to La Jolla. And when I mentioned this on Twitter, I got a surprising amount of crap from people. They're like, well, how can this be a vacation if you're just going an hour and a half south from where you live? These people obviously are not familiar with San Diego County. And most people, when they think of San Diego, they think of beaches. And that's true. San Diego has a lot of fantastic beaches. But San Diego County has an amazingly varied landscape and topography. For example, right in the middle of San Diego County sits the Anza Borrega Desert. This is literally a badlands, like the type of badlands you would expect to see in New Mexico or Arizona, or even parts of Utah. I've lived my whole life in Southern California, and I didn't even know this existed until like three years ago, when we went out there for something they call the super bloom. It's when you get a real rainy season, and all the desert flowers that have been dormant for four or five years all come up at once. It was amazing. I also learned when I was out there that Anza Borrega is one of only two certified dark sky cities in the United States. And that means that there's so little man-made light that the sky looks basically like you would expect it to look at the, the dawn of time. It's super black. It's great for um, stargazing or for astronomy. So San Diego County has just so many cool things. We didn't go to Anza Borrega this time. Like I said, we stayed in La Jolla. But one of the things we did is we took a day trip up to a mountain town called Julian. Now, Julian is great for a number of reasons. The first of which is that it is the home of the Julian Pie Company, which is the best pie you've ever had, made only better when done a la mode because they use thrifty ice cream. And if you're from Southern California, you know exactly why uh, thrifty ice cream makes it fantastic. But the cool thing about Julian is to get there, you have to drive along this, this road that goes along the top of a mountain ridge. It's a, it's a mountain range that goes out to something called Point Laguna. And on one side of the, the ridge is what you would expect to see in any Southern California mountain town. It's very lush, it's green, there's lots of pine trees. But on the other side of the ridge sits Anza Borrega and the Badlands. And it's this fascinating, juxtaposition of different landscapes that I find just incredible. So it was a great time down there. Uh, I have to say though, <laughs> uh, this inflation thing is no joke. I could not believe how expensive things were. Now I've got three rules when I go on vacation. One is I don't pay attention to how much or what I eat. I'm on vacation and screw it. I'll deal with the caloric consequences when I get back. Number two is I'm a little bit more lax on my imbibing rules. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of craft beer, but these days I, I try to limit you know, my intake to just the weekend. But if I'm on vacation and I wanna have a couple beers on a Tuesday, then I'll have them. And if I wanna have a couple beers on Tuesday and Wednesday, I'll have them. And if 
I want to have a couple beers on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'll have them, right? Number three is I don't pay attention to what things cost. I figure, look, we're going on vacation. I know it's going to cost an arm and a leg. In for a penny, in for a pound. I'm just going to, you know, you just got to bite the bullet. That's what you do when you go on vacation. I'm not, I don't pay attention to what this costs or that costs. However, when you're signing restaurant checks and room service tabs, it's really hard not to see how much things cost. And I'm telling you, everything was super expensive. Like I couldn't believe how expensive things were. Um, the last takeaway from the trip is this. We went to the San Diego Safari Park one day, which is a really cool alternative to the zoo because as much as I like to see animals, it can be really depressing to see them in cages. And as we all know, if you don't see something, it doesn't exist. So we go to the Wild Animal Safari Park because they've built this fantastic African savanna that goes for miles out into the San Diego mountains. And the animals basically roam free out there. It's, it looks exactly like it would in Africa. I mean, I'm, I don't think they've got uh, water fountains and, and metal feeding troughs in Africa. They might. I don't know. I've never been there. But it's as close to an African savanna as you could expect man to make. And it's really cool. But to go there, you have to get on a tram. And in order to get on the tram, you have to wait in line. Now, the line for the tram is one of those deceptive amusement park lines. If, you, if you've ever been to the Haunted House ride in Disneyland, you know what I'm talking about. The Haunted House line starts right at the gate to the Haunted House. And so you get there and you go, oh, look, I'm, I'm almost at the Haunted House. I'm like 20 feet away. So it's probably only going to be like a a 10 minute wait. But what people don't know is as soon as you get in the gate, the line takes a hard left turn and then it basically serpentines back on itself about 20 or 30 times. So that 10 minute wait you thought you had is now an hour and a half wait. That's exactly what the lines were like to get on this tram. Now, we weren't in a hurry. It was a beautiful day. So whatever, we got in there. But at some point I looked back and I realized, oh, there's this mass of humanity that is just crushed against each other. And there's no masks on anywhere. And that's how it was everywhere we went. There was no social distancing. There was no plexiglass up and very, very few people with masks. Now, no matter how you feel about COVID, I think the fact of the matter is most of the population has this hunger to get back to a sense of normalcy. People were out and about. People were spending money in this inflationary environment. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that, you know, affects the economy going forward. This this pent up demand of people that are willing to pay whatever prices are out there. And uh, so it's something that we want to definitely keep an eye on going forward. All right. So this week I want to talk about two topics. One, I want to just briefly revisit what we left off with last week, which was Elon Musk and his potential buyout of Twitter. And I want to expand what's going on there a little bit to the general concept of buyouts and, and why we're not seeing a lot of buyouts right now. Uh, and the last thing I want to talk about is someone had hit me up about books on trading psychology. And they had asked me my opinion on two books, uh, both by Mark Douglas, Trading in the Zone and The Disciplined Trader. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, let's talk about everybody's favorite guy, Elon Musk. In the last episode of the Lundloop podcast, I theorized whether I thought he was here for the short term and this was just a stunt with Twitter, 
or whether he was actually here for the long term. And the way I came out on the issue is I don't think you put $2.6 billion into a company as a stunt. And everything we've seen from him throughout his career indicates that when he gets involved with a company or an entity, he really wants to make a change. So I came out on the side of this is a long-term commitment and he wants to unlock shareholder value. And I think that makes perfect sense because currently he's the largest individual shareholder. It's only going to benefit him. It's not like this is some altruistic cause. And we also talked about some strategies in which we could benefit if we get a multi-month or a multi-year move in Twitter, or even if Twitter just stays where it is. And if you want the specifics about that, just go ahead and check out episode three of the Lundloop podcast. Since we spoke, Musk has actually come out with a bid. He bid $54.20. And even though the stock got a little bit of a pop when that came out, it since kind of leveled off. And now it's trading like 40, This of course begs the question, why is it not trading at 54.20? Why is it not trading for the price that um, Musk indicates he wants to pay? And of course the obvious answer is the market doesn't believe this. It doesn't believe either that he's going to follow through with this or it doesn't believe that he has the ability, even if he wanted to, to follow through this. And we've seen since the announcement, Twitter came out with a, a poison pill, which uh, I think triggers at a certain percentage. So if somebody owns, I think it's like 14% or something. If somebody owns that much, they'll all of a sudden issue more shares, which will dilute the stock and, and make it more expensive. So there's a lot of different reasons why the market doesn't believe that this buyout's going to happen. Otherwise, you could just buy the stock right now and you'd be locking in a, a you know, four-point gain for sure. As I've looked into some of these factors, one of the things that stood out to me was the concept of potential value. So, look, I'm not an M&A guy. I'm not going to pretend I am. But basically, if there's a hostile takeover and the board doesn't want to sign off on it, the person that's trying to take over the company can then initiate legal actions. And basically, it goes to the court. And there's some pretty clear criteria that the court uses to, to determine whether a potential takeover offer is valid and if, if the, the board should accept it. But one of the criteria is, is, is there a path to a higher value than what the potential uh, takeover entity or person is offering? So for example, let's say a stock is trading for $50 a share and a buyout group comes in and offers $70 a share. That's a 40% premium to what the stock is trading at now. And most people would say, well, of course, the, the board has to take that because it's in the best interest of the shareholders. But if the board can demonstrate to the courts that there is a clear path, a reasonable path, that can get the price of the company's stock above 70, 80, 90, 100, somewhere above the buyout price, then legally they can say, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to take this offer, even if it's a higher premium than what the stock is trading at currently. And the courts will side with them and they'll say, no, you don't have to take that buyout. And where it gets really tricky for the entity that's trying to take over the company is when there is a drop in the stock price that's very rapid and that coincides with overall deteriorating market conditions. For example, if we look at Twitter, 
it wasn't that long ago that Twitter was trading $73 a share, which is quite a premium to what even Musk is offering. And if we go back just a little over a year, it was at all time highs around 80. So the board could reasonably come in and say, look, we just were at a much higher valuation than what Mr. Musk is offering not that long ago. And it's really only because of macro conditions. And once these macro conditions pass, there's definitely a path for us to get to a valuation much higher than what he's offering. The problem is the investing public doesn't understand this concept. In fact, they see this concept in exactly the opposite way. For example, we've seen all these growth stocks that have blown up over the last year or year and a half. And if you go to Twitter or to Reddit or to StockTwits and you see people posting messages about these stocks, one of the overriding themes is buyout. Oh, somebody's going to buy us out. An M&A firm is going to come and buy us out. Someone's going to take us out for a premium. This is the way they see it. They look at a stock like Peloton, which is trading for roughly 20 bucks. And they see that a year ago it was trading for 124 bucks. Now, don't make me do the math, but that's like a 80% loss in value. And they think, oh, somebody's going to come in and offer $30 a share for Peloton. That's a 50% premium. And of course, the board's going to have to take that premium. So they either hang on to their stock or they buy the stock and think that that's what's going to happen. That has to happen. They're seeing it exactly opposite. They're saying, well, it was $124. Now it's on sale. Somebody's going to take advantage of that and buy the stock out. But it's actually the opposite. If Peloton doesn't want to be bought out, they can push back against any acquiring entity. They can go to the courts and say, look, we were $124 a share just a year ago. We've had an 80% drop in our valuation, and it's mostly due to macro issues, market mechanics, not really anything about our business model. And if they can demonstrate a way that they think they can get back to a higher valuation than what the acquiring company wants to offer, they don't have to take the deal. And that's why you don't see a flurry of opportunistic M&A activity and buyouts when the market is tanking. Because the board of directors, the courts, even the shareholders know that someone that tries to come in and buy out a company in that situation, they're usually trying to steal the company and it's not going to work anyway. In fact, if you look at a chart of M&A activity over the last 25 years, still to this day, two of the biggest peaks in activity are in 1999 and 2007. Now in 1999, we had sky high valuations as the dot-com boom progressed. And in 2007, that was right before the financial crisis when, once again, prices and valuations were super high. So it's almost counterintuitive. You're going to see more M&A generally as a stock is moving up or as the market is moving up opposed to moving down. The takeaway here for Twitter and Musk is that he can't just come in and offer a premium and expect the board to take that offer or even have to take that offer. Now, that being said, Elon Musk is a genius. I'm sure he and a battery of M&A lawyers have already sat down and figured out some high-level strategy that none of us are privy to that will allow him to either get control of the company or at least influence it in a significant way. Is this the London Okay, let's switch gears here and talk about trading psychology, probably the most important concept 
for being a successful trader is getting your trading psychology correct. I got an email, I can't remember if it was an email or a tweet or something in Discord. Somehow somebody reached out to me and said, what do you think about The Disciplined Trader, which is a book by Mark Douglas? But before I answer that question, I wanna focus for a minute on the author. If you've been in the trading community for any amount of time, you know that Mark Douglas is the pioneer, not a pioneer. He is the pioneer when it comes to writing about and talking about trading psychology. But by the same token, he's somewhat of an enigma. You can't really get a feel for Mark Douglas, despite the fact that he has a number of published books and there's videos of him on the internet. And part of this is because his first book, Discipline Trader, The Discipline Trader, was published in 1990, which is, for all intents and purposes, a pre-internet era. And even his second book, Trading in the Zone, was published in 2000, which was definitely before social media and really before the internet became as seamless and as ubiquitous in our lives. So, you know, we're used to seeing somebody write a book or talk about something and then being able to interact with them or their content on many different levels and get a feel for them. But Mark belongs to a almost a pre-technology time and it's really hard to understand where he's coming from. If you read his books or you read his biographies, it's a little bit mushy. He doesn't have a background in psychology, any sort of formal background in psychology, psychiatry, as far as I can tell. And even his trading background is a little nebulous. He was, I think, an account manager for Merrill Lynch in 1982. And he talks about trading his own account, but as far as I know, he never ran a hedge fund. He never ran money. Um, so it's you say to yourself, well, okay, what's this guy's um, credentials? How can he write about all these things? This mystery even deepens more if you look at the current presence of Mark Douglas across the internet. If you go to his Penguin Random House page, which is the publisher that published his books, they will tell you that Mark began coaching traders in 1982. And they will tell you that he has been a frequent speaker at seminars across the world. And they will tell you he can be reached through his website, markdouglas.com. However, if you go to said website, you'll see that it redirects to a website called paulatweb.com. Paula T. Webb is self-described as the first lady of psychology and the co-creator of trading psychology, I don't know what that is, with Mark Douglas. She is also self-described as a Wall Street mogul and independent film producer. And this website is a bizarre rambling collection of uh, links and testimonies. It's, it's very odd. And it appears that Paula T is Mark Douglas's wife. And if you click the About Us section of the website, you will see that it says, along with Mark Douglas, both are known as gurus, in capitals and quotation marks, of trading psychology. I don't know what trading psychology is by itself. I would think it should be the field of trading psychology. Who knows? It also goes on to say, Mark and I write anywhere and at any time we get inspiration. And that we have traveled to over eight countries around the world, helping traders become prosperous. Okay. But what's really odd to me is that both on the Penguin Random House website, as well as Paula T. Webb 
formerly Mark Douglas's website. On both those sites, there's no mention of the fact that Mark Douglas is in fact dead. Unfortunately, Mark died in 2015. And so this just adds, at least for me, to the mystery surrounding Mark Douglas, this somewhat nebulous background and this odd attempt to continue his legacy as if he's still alive. It's just a little bit bizarre. Now, how does that inform what he wrote in his two books? Well, in my opinion, it doesn't. And here's why. When I was first trying to learn about trading way back in the day, in like the 1592, I came across a couple of different websites that really resonated with me. One was uh, Trader X and another was one called Trader Jamie. And every day they would write about and break down the trades that they made that day. And I studied those charts and I studied their strategy and I learned so much from both those websites. However, there was a big controversy in both communities of those websites at the time. And a lot of people were claiming, well, I don't think these guys are trading. I think what they're actually doing is they're waiting until the market closes and they're going back and they're cherry picking charts and then they're showing where they would have entered and where they would have exited and what their strategy was, even though they didn't really do it. And it was this big back and forth and people got all involved and upset, even in a pre-FinTwit time. And to me, it didn't matter whether they were really trading or not, because the analysis that they were doing was spot on and correct. And if you could learn that analysis, you could incorporate it into your trading and be successful. So I don't really care what Mark's background was. I don't care what they're trying to do with his legacy today. Both of Mark's books are amazingly spot on when it comes to decoding and understanding the psychology that most of us have to deal with when it comes to trading. Now, having said that, I don't think I would recommend Mark's books to a trader today who's trying to learn about psychology. There's a little bit of a Bob Dylan factor associated with Mark Douglas. Bob Dylan, when I listened to Bob Dylan, when I listened to him growing up, my ears hurt listening to that, that voice. And I would always say, why is this guy so revered? Well, the reason he was so revered is because he was the first singer-songwriter to really write about serious issues in his lyrics. Nobody else was doing that. So he was an innovator and a pioneer and, and rightly so gets a lot of uh, plaudits. It's the same thing with Mark Douglas. He's the first guy that really talked about these issues way before anybody else did. So he definitely gets you know plaudits for that. But the books themselves they're not that great. Mark or whoever wrote them is not a really good writer. They're very hard to slog through. They're very repetitive. They're very dry. If I was recommending books for people to read today about trading psychology, the first book I would recommend is Trade Your Way to Financial Freedom by Van Tharp. Despite the super cheesy title, this was the first book that really resonated with me when it came to trading psychology. It's very well written. It's easy to get through. It's also the book that talks about the R concept, something that I've written about a lot. So if you want to see what the genesis is of the R concept, you can go to that book. 
The second book may be a little bit of a surprise. It would be Alexander Elder's Trading for a Living. Now, I've been very vocal in the past about my skepticism around Alexander Elder. I, I believe he probably makes more money by selling books and having seminars than he ever has trading. And the second part of the book, which is a strategy for trading based upon three different time frames and histograms, that's really outdated and super basic. So you can like rip that part of the book out. But the first part of the book on trading psychology is really good. So I would recommend those two books and then definitely any book by Brett Steenbarger. That would be The Daily Trading Coach. That would be A Trader's Guide to Self-Discipline. Uh, and in fact, I would just recommend his website, which is traderfeed.com. He's always updating it with new articles around trading psychology. And the thing about Brett is, you know, once again, this isn't a slam against Mark Douglas, but Brett Steenbarger has a PhD in psychiatry and behavioral sciences. So you know that the stuff he talks about is going to be solid. Um. I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelungloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.